Good morning. Good morning. Again, uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you all as we uh, gather to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who uh, haven't been with us, uh, this will be, um, well, I'd like to just quickly summarize, review a little bit uh, where we're at in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, For those of you that have been with us, this will just be a a simple review of sorts. Hopefully, it will serve us all well. Uh, A few weeks ago, we started the fourth and final major section of the Gospel of Luke, detailing for us the final week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth, leading up to the cross and ultimately uh, culminating with His victorious resurrection from the dead. We started this section by looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey, uh, the foal of a donkey, to be more specific. As Jesus entered into the city, everything about that day pointed to the fact that Jesus Christ was indeed the long-awaited, anointed one of the Lord, the Jews' Messiah, the King from the line of David. Now, after arriving in the city on Sunday, Jesus went to the temple, and he simply made observations of what was going on there. It's in Mark's gospel where it tells us that it was already late, and so Jesus departed the city, and he went back to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Mark chapter 11, verse 11 uh, says that. Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem the next day, Monday, and uh, went immediately to the temple once again, and he cleaned house. Okay, He drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and he proclaimed, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Now, after cleaning out his father's house, Matthew's gospel informs us that Jesus once again departed Jerusalem, went to Bethany, which is where he was lodging during that final week. The next day, Tuesday, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem once again, and he once again made his way to the temple. And this time, though, the religious authorities in the form of the Jewish Sanhedrin were waiting for him, and they had some questions for him about his authority. They wanted to know two things. They wanted to know what gave Jesus the authority to do what he was doing, and they wanted to know who gave him that authority. Now, Jesus didn't immediately answer their question. Instead, he asked them a question about John the Baptist and his authority, asking them whether John's ministry was from heaven or from men. And when the religious leaders would not answer Jesus' question about John the Baptist, he declined to answer their question about his authority. Interestingly, though, Jesus then immediately followed up that conversation with the religious leaders from the Sanhedrin with a parable about a vineyard owner and some wicked vine dressers. The parable was a parable that described the religious leaders and their treatment of God's prophets throughout the years. It was also a way for Jesus to answer their question about his authority. For in the parable, Jesus spoke of how the vineyard owner sent his very own son to the vine dressers and how the vine dressers took the son, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him in hopes of taking the vineyard for themselves. And this was an obvious description and foreshadowing of what God had done in sending Jesus Christ and what the religious leaders were going to do in their rejection of Jesus. Jesus had authority to do what he did because he was the son of God, and he was given that authority by the Father, by the Lord himself. Now, the religious leaders, they knew that Jesus had spoken this parable against them. They greatly desired to lay hands upon him, to seize him, but they could not because they feared the people and what the people may do in response. And that brings us to where we're at in 
today's text. It is still Tuesday. In fact, everything that we read of in Luke chapter 20 and all of chapter 21 all happen on Tuesday of Jesus's final week leading up to the cross. He's still in Jerusalem. He's still there in the temple area. And so our text picks up in Luke chapter 20 verses 20 through 38. The title of our study this morning is going to be Inescapable Truth. Inescapable Truth. Will you all rise to your feet in honor of God and his word? I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke continues his report of the details that occurred that Tuesday with the following in verse 20. It says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, We know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us in all truth, that we might understand uh, these truths, Lord, that we might uh, receive them to our own hearts, our own lives, and allow your truth to mold and shape us in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask for you to continue the work you began in us. We know that you'll be faithful to complete it. And so, Lord, we just look forward to all that you desire to do, all that your word is going to do uh, in and through us this morning. We give you our lives, and we give you this time of study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In our text uh, this morning, Jesus, he continues to be confronted by various groups of people trying to discredit him and, and bring accusations against him. Jesus is asked two questions by two different groups of people, And the topic of these two questions, while different, they have something that connects them. You know, it has been said that the only thing certain in life 
is death and taxes. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, in response to the completion of the U.S. Constitution, is quoted as saying, Our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable, but in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Now, the idea behind this proverb that nothing is certain except uh, death and taxes is that one cannot avoid the inevitable, that certain things in life are common to all men and they cannot be avoided. And while this proverb has been around for centuries now, the truth is that there's a whole lot more things that are certain besides just death and taxes. In our text today, Jesus is asked a question about taxes and whether they should be paid or not. And then he's asked a question about death and what happens after death and the resurrection. For those of you who like to take notes to outline our text, we're going to break up our study into these two main sections. In verses 20 through 26, we're going to look at the details surrounding a question from some spies. And then in verses 27 through 38, we're going to highlight the details surrounding a question from some Sadducees. So let's take a look at our opening verse once again as we dive into the details regarding a question from some spies. Read with me verse 20 again. It says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. We'll stop there. I want to stop right here just to explain the situation a little bit more and to make a point before we move on. Here in our text, we're told of a group of people who were watching Jesus. Presumably, this is speaking about the same religious leaders that were mentioned in verse 19 from our text last week. This is the chief priest and the scribes. Okay? The word used here is a very descriptive and telling word. The word watched is the word paratereo in the Greek, and it means to watch closely or to observe a person insidiously meaning that they were watching closely, looking for an opportunity to entrap Jesus. And so they decided to send a group of spies to Jesus. Luke tells us that these spies pretended to be righteous. The word pretend has as, as its roots the idea of playing the hypocrite. These spies were They were hypocrites. They were pretenders, trying to play the part of someone righteous, someone just in their ways and their deeds. Now, we aren't told here in Luke's gospel, but in the other synoptic gospels in Matthew and Mark, we're told the identity of these spies. It was actually a mixed group. Matthew tells us that it was the Pharisees who went and plotted how they might entangle Jesus in his talk. And then in Mark's gospel, we're told that it was not only the Pharisees, but also the Herodians that were sent to catch Jesus in his words. Now, the Pharisees, we're pretty familiar with them as we've been studying through the gospel of Luke. Uh, We've seen them a number of times. They have been coming against Jesus in his ministry ever since the beginning of his earthly ministry. The Pharisees represented a Jewish religious party, whose members followed a very strict adherence to the oral law and to the traditions of men that were established by past rabbis and religious leaders. Now, the Herodians, on the other hand, were more of a political party, not a religious one, and they were made up of Jews of influence who were favorable toward Greek customs and Roman law. They sympathized with the Herodian rulers in their form of government and supported the Herods who sat upon the throne during this time. Recall that it was Herod the Tetrarch who ruled in the region of Galilee and Perea during the days of Jesus. 
Now, this is a very odd pairing of individuals sent to spy on Jesus. The reason these two are an unlikely pairing is because they held very different perspectives regarding the occupation of Israel by the Romans. The Pharisees despised Roman control over them. They, along with most of the other Jews, wanted to be a free people, to do as they pleased. However, the Herodians, they greatly favored the Roman control of Israel, and they were supportive and compliant with the form of government and rule that they were under. So two groups with very different opinions that were at odds with each other united to come against Jesus. Evidently, they lived by the old adage, the enemy of mine enemy is my friend. In fact, this is the second time recorded in Scripture where the Pharisees and the Herodians united together against Jesus. During his ministry in Galilee, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. He made the Pharisees look like fools. And the Pharisees reacted to Jesus by going out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. And so these uh, Pharisees and these Herodians have been uh, manipulating and, and planning and plotting against Jesus and how to destroy him for quite some time. Even though they didn't like each other, they didn't like what each other stood for, they were able to look beyond that in an effort to take out Jesus. Now, these spies, they were sent in basically to try and deliver Jesus to the power and authority of the Roman governor, a man we'll read more about later on in our continued study of the Gospel of Luke. It's a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Most of you are probably very familiar with him. Now, I do find this interesting. Jesus was just questioned about his authority. Okay? What gave him the authority to do what he was doing? Who gave him that authority? And he clearly showed through the parable of the vineyard owner that his authority was from the Lord and that it was given to him as God's one and only begotten son. But here, these spies, they're sent to try and appeal to what they believe to be a higher authority. They want to present their case to the Roman authorities, and they believe that they'll be able to trap Jesus and present him to a higher authority and have their way with him. And this brings me to the first inescapable truth that I want to bring up for us this morning. All authority has been given to Jesus, and there is no higher authority. Jesus said so at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, you cannot find a higher authority than Jesus. He is sovereign over all things. He rules and reigns over everything. And one day, every knee will bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. That is an inescapable truth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? You cannot get away from that truth. And while every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, it is only those who bow the knee now and those who confess the Lord now on this side of eternity that will be welcomed into the presence of the Lord in heaven. Those that wait to bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord after their death, well, they will spend an eternity separated from the Lord in a place created for the devil and his demons, a place that the Bible refers to as hell. And so make sure you bow the knee and make sure you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord now while the breath of life still flows through you. Well, 
Let's take a look at the question that these spies ask in their attempt to try and trap Jesus. Let's look at it, verse 21 and 22. It says, Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Before getting to their question, this group of spies tried their their best to butter Jesus up with a bunch of empty flattery. First, they flattered him personally. They referred to Jesus as teacher. This was a term that was held in high esteem. In the King James Version, if anybody's reading from the King James this morning, it's translated as the English word master. This word was used as a title of respect for those who taught the Scripture of God. It was used to distinguish those who were well-learned, those who were well-versed in the Scriptures. Second, they flattered him morally. They said to Jesus, We know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism. Basically, they were stating that Jesus was a morally upright individual. He didn't favor one kind of person over another. His words and his actions, well, they were in accord with one another. He said and he did what was right. And then third, they flattered him doctrinally, okay? proclaiming, you teach the way of God in truth. And basically, they were saying that Jesus' teachings lined up with what is found in the Word of God. Jesus wasn't going around just teaching what he uh, felt like or whatever he thought or what he believed, although he was God. He taught the Word of God. Okay? Everything he taught, it lined up with the rest of Scripture, and that's very important. Okay? And so we see that they flattered Jesus in these three ways, personally, morally, and doctrinally. And while all of these things were true of Jesus, right? He was a teacher, well acquainted with the Word of God. He was a morally upright individual whose words and actions were in agreement. And he did teach in accordance with the rest of Scripture. We know and we understand that this was nothing more than flattery, empty words, right? Flattery is something that's used to, you know, butter people up, things that are said in order to get something from someone or to entrap someone, to make them uh, give you something or to uh, be forced to reciprocate, if you will. Proverbs 29 verse 5 states, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And that is exactly what these spies were doing. They were spreading a net for Jesus's feet, trying to set a trap against him. And they started it all off with this smooth words of flattery. Now, after their flattering words, they then posed a question to Jesus. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the tax in question was most likely the poll tax. Okay? It's kind of like a census tax. Okay. Uh, There were three major forms of taxation during that day under Roman authority and many other smaller taxes, but three major ones. There was a tax on land. You were required to bring forth one-tenth of your crops and grain and one-fifth of your fruit and give it to the Roman authorities. There was a straight-across-the-board 5% income tax that all were charged. And then lastly, there was this poll tax. And the poll tax was the same for every single citizen, regardless of position or employment. It was a tax that you were charged basically for simply living, okay? You were breathing Roman air and occupying Roman space, therefore you pay the poll tax. And the cost for the poll tax was one denarius for everybody. Again, no matter how much you made or didn't make, you were charged one denarius. 
Jews hated having to pay this tax. Okay? Not only was it a constant reminder of their bondage to Rome, but it also made it appear that they had an allegiance to Caesar who claimed to be God. You see, the question of it being lawful or not was not meant to be tied to Roman law. Their question is not, hey, is this legal for Rome to do this? Because Rome made all the rules, okay? And of course, it was legal for Rome to tax their people, okay? This was not a question about Roman law, but the law of God. Was it lawful to pay tribute to a king that thought himself to be a god? These spies, in their limited mind, they felt that they had trapped Jesus with this question. They just spoke of how he was a well-respected teacher, you know, a morally upright man. He teaches the way of God. Most importantly, he wasn't a respecter of men. He didn't show favoritism. If Jesus were to answer that it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, then he would be seen as a traitor to the Lord and to his people who hated having to pay this poll tax. The Pharisees would seize upon his words and spread them like wildfire with hopes of everyone churning against Jesus. And if he answered no, well, there the Herodians were to seize him and bring him before the authorities with accusations of Jesus trying to start a tax revolt. And so there seemed to be no way to answer this question without being seen as either a traitor to the people or to the authorities that were present there. So let's see how Jesus responds. Take a look at verses 23 through 25. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he saw right through their empty flattery, their hollow words about him being true and a teacher of the ways of God. He knew they were testing him, and he called them out for their hypocrisy, saying, Why do you test me? They are acting as if they believe and they, uh, you know, support Jesus and they look highly upon him when in reality he knows that they've already previously plotted out ways to kill him and are now trying to entangle him in his own words. And so Jesus demanded that they show him a denarius. And as I mentioned, the tax money at that time was one denarius. A denarius was a Roman silver coin equivalent in value to the Greek drachma. Most Bible scholars agree that a denarius represented the equivalent to a normal day's wage for your average worker or laborer. Jesus asked about whose image and inscription were upon the coin. Now, upon the denarius coin was an image of Caesar, most likely Caesar Augustus Tiberius, who ruled over Rome at that time. And according to those that study ancient coins, there was, in fact, an inscription upon the coin as well. Uh, Tiberius's coin is said to be inscribed with the following, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And so the men answered Jesus by properly identifying the image and the inscription as being Caesar's. And so Jesus' response was this, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In his response, Jesus completely avoided the traps that were intended for him to be uh, intended for him by the Herodians and the Pharisees. Not only did he avoid the pitfalls that were set before him, he also was able to share some very important truths. Number one, we see that while many may not like this, government and taxation have their place. Jesus could have said, don't pay the tax, right? But he didn't, okay? He said to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. 
The word render means to repay or to restore or to return. If Caesar gives you something and he asks for a payment, then you should be willing to pay it, like paying back that which was given. You know, good governments provide basic services. They provide uh, protections and safeties uh, for their citizens and their people, and, and taxes help to fund those provisions, okay? Many of you understand that concept very well in the military. Uh, taxes go to support you and fund the budgets for the things that you guys do, and so you understand how taxes work, okay? But more importantly, Jesus showed that our first priority is to God. When Jesus said, render to God the things that are God's, he was challenging people to live their life for God first. You see, the image on the denarius was that of Caesar. And so render it to Caesar. But the image upon you and me is that of God. Genesis describes us as being created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 states, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is one of those inescapable truths. Every person is created in the image of God. Every man, woman, and child is a bearer of the image of God. And we are unique amongst all of his creation in that way. No other creature has been created in the image of God. It is a special and a unique touch that God has placed upon each of us. Since God's image is upon us, we must render to God that which is His, our very life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 states, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your, your body and your spirit, they belong to the Lord. He has purchased them with his blood. We are the Lord's, and so we must render to him, we must give back to him that which he gave to us. He gave to us new life, and with that new life, he asks us to give it back to him, to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice to him. Well, Let's read our final verse in this section. We'll look at the response the spies, of the spies in verse 26. It says, But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. As hard as they tried, these spies sent to Jesus by the religious leaders could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. Instead of catching Jesus, all they could do was marvel at the answer he gave, and they remained silent before him. The word marvel in the Greek it speaks of being struck with great admiration and great astonishment, like being overwhelmed or blown away. They were left speechless. Matthew's parallel account tells us that they marveled and they left him and went their way. You know, we would hope that it would read, they would marvel at him and then they followed him. Or, you know, they marveled at him and then they submitted to him. They, they gave their life to him. But no, that's not what it says. They marveled at him and then they left him. Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary the following. He says, There are many in whose eyes Christ is marvelous and yet not precious. They admire his wisdom but will not be guided by it. His power but will not submit to it. May that not be a description of us. 
May we be ones who marvel at Jesus, who find ourselves in awe and worship of the Lord. May we be those who are overwhelmed by the grace of God, the love of God, the truth of God, his desire to have fellowship with us, that it would overwhelm us and we would just be blown away at all that his marvelous works. The Lord is marvelous and he is worthy of our praise. The psalmist writes in Psalm 9, verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. Psalm 98, 1 says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Jesus Christ has gained us the victory over sin, death, and the grave. Psalm 139, verse 14 says, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. May our souls know very well, deep down within us, of all the marvelous works that God has done in us and through us and for us. Let's continue on. We'll take a look at this second section dealing with a question from some Sadducees. Read verses 27 and 28 just to get started. It says, Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. We'll pause there. Here we see there's a second group that come to Jesus. This time it was the Sadducees. Now this is the first and only mention of the Sadducees in Luke's gospel account. And if left to only what he gives us, we wouldn't know very much about them. But Matthew's gospel and the book of Acts gives us more details about this particular group of people. The Sadducees, they came from the leading families of the nation, the priests, the merchants, the uh, aristocrats, The high priest and the most powerful members of the priesthood were mainly Sadducees. The Sadducees were known for a few different things. They were known to oppose the oral tradition that was passed down through generations. They only followed the teachings of Moses found in the first five books of our Bible, Okay, what's referred to as the Torah. They only listened and followed uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the rest of the Old Testament. We don't believe that or follow that. That was the Sadducees' perspective. They enjoyed privileged positions in the society. They managed to get along well under Roman rule. But most notably of all was their disbelief in the resurrection and the immortality of the soul and their disbelief even in angels and in spirits. Their disbelief in the resurrection seems to be what stirs them to approach Jesus with a question that they are sure... um, will make the belief in the resurrection look foolish, okay? Their question is going to be based upon a teaching that Moses gave to them in the book of Deuteronomy regarding the marriage duty of a surviving brother. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, Moses lays out the details of this marriage duty of a surviving brother. And basically, the law stated that if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son to carry on his name, then the surviving brother is to take the dead brother's widow as his own wife, and their firstborn would succeed to the name of his dead brother, so that the name of his dead brother will not be blotted out from the history books of Israel. It was a way for the name and the lineage to continue on, uh, even though the, uh, the man had passed away. Now, this law was not mandatory. 
Okay, if a brother didn't want to take his dead brother's widow as a wife, he did not have to. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses described a ceremony that could be performed that involved a sandal and the woman spitting in the brother's face in front of the city gates. Now, if you want to read the details of that later on, you can check it out. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25, a very interesting ceremony, okay? Now, with this law in mind, the Sadducees come to Jesus with their question. Let's read it in verses 29 through 33. They've kind of set it all up here, and they say, Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. It would seem that the Sadducees, they are attempting to show how Jesus' own belief in the resurrection leads to ridiculous conclusions. Their what-if question is designed to show absurd consequences that can arise from believing in the resurrection of the, the dead. Uh, Sadducees spoke of a situation that certainly was not based upon a real-life event of seven brothers all marrying the same woman and never having children and all of them dying before the widow finally died as well. Because you know what? I, I think just honestly, if you're like the third or the fourth brother, you're like, okay, I got my sandal. Let's head to the city gates, right? I'll just wipe the spit from my face and we'll move on. I'm not going to... There's a pattern going on here and we don't want to be a part of it, okay? This was... Definitely a, a hypothetical okay, question that was meant to cause problems for those that believe in the resurrection, specifically meant to cause problems for Jesus. And so their fictional account of a woman that had seven brothers as husbands before her death led to a question regarding marriage in the resurrection. They asked, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Let's read Jesus' response. In verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, in the parallel accounts in both Matthew and Mark, we are told that Jesus said that these Sadducees were mistaken in their understanding of the resurrection and what it will be like in the resurrection. They were mistaken because of two things, according to Matthew and Mark. They were mistaken because they did not know the scriptures and because they did not know the power of God. In response to their lack of knowledge in the scriptures, Jesus spoke to them about the topic of marriage and how in this day and age, okay, presently, people marry and are given in marriage. But in the resurrection, people will no longer marry and be given in marriage. Now, it is interesting to consider if you do an Old Testament study, um, you will nowhere find in the Old Testament uh, a mention specifically that says there isn't marriage in heaven. Okay? You won't find that. But if the Sadducees would have simply looked at the very purpose of marriage as designed by God back in the book of Genesis, they would have known there's no need for marriage in the resurrection. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Marriage was given as a response to man's loneliness, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. However, man will not be lonely in heaven, as we will be with God and the angels and the rest of all who are in Christ. Also, in Genesis chapter 1, God established the first marriage between Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Marriage was given to man and woman so that they would procreate and they would fill the earth. Heaven, however, is not a place filled by man's procreation. It's filled with God, his angels, and his children who come to him by faith. There will be no need for people to be born in heaven. There won't be birth in heaven. Okay, You don't get born into heaven. <laughs> you either are or you aren't there. Okay? And so if the Sadducees would have considered the basis for marriage and the design that God gave to it, attested to by Moses in the book of Genesis, the books that they adhere to, they should have realized that there'd be no need for marriage in heaven. And so they failed to understand and they were deceived because they did not know the scriptures and what they taught. And you guys, the same can happen to us. If we're not careful, we can fall into that same trap. It's sad to say that this, but unfortunately, there are a bunch of people out there that are leading people astray, that are deceiving people, that are misleading them, all because people don't know the scriptures. They don't know what the Word of God teaches. There are all sorts of cults out there, false religions, false doctrines that are being passed around as gospel truth simply because people fail to realize and understand the scriptures. We need to be good students of the word of God. We need to know what the scriptures teach that we may be able to discern whether or not something does line up with the rest of scripture. I want to encourage you all to be like the Bereans. It's in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. We read about them, the church in Berea. They gladly received Paul's words from him, but... Then they went and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether the things Paul was saying were actually true and in accordance with the word of God. And I invite you to do the same with me and and anyone else that would share from this pulpit or any other pulpit. You see, don't just trust someone just because they stand behind a pulpit, okay? Search out the truth for yourself. Make sure you know for yourselves what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. And this leads me to another inescapable truth. God has left us his word and he expects us to know it. When we get to heaven, there will be no excuses for not surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. There will be no excuses for not believing in God and yielding your life to him. Ignorance will not be an acceptable response in heaven. We can't say, well, I just didn't know. Even those without the scriptures will be without excuse. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Here's the inescapable truth. Every single person will be held accountable for knowing God and yielding their lives to him. No form of excuse will be accepted for why a person didn't believe in the Lord and yield their life to Him. It doesn't matter what your upbringing was or your background was or what truths you were exposed to or what lies you were exposed to. There will be no excuses. We will be held responsible and accountable for knowing Him and yielding our lives to Him. These Sadducees, they were mistaken about the Scriptures. 
when it came to marriage and the resurrection, but they were also mistaken about the power of God in the resurrection. Jesus once again takes them to the teachings of Moses because, remember, these Sadducees only believe in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus takes them to the passage about the burning bush that's found in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, Moses writes the following. He says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the key that Jesus is pointing out here is the tense God used when he spoke to Moses. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Centuries before the days of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all died. But when God appeared to Moses, he declared in the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus used this as proof that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive and that God was still their God, that he and, uh, was with them. And Jesus concluded by proclaiming that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. These people were greatly mistaken. They were deceived because they did not know about the power of God to raise a life from the dead. Again, I see a warning for us here. We too can find ourselves being misled and deceived by failing to realize the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 attests, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And this leads me to yet another inescapable truth. And it's this. All will take part in one of two resurrections. Every person okay, will take part in either one of two resurrections. The scriptures testify of there being two resurrections, one for the just and one for the unjust. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the just. It's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. There we're told that all who partake in the first resurrection are blessed. They're holy. And that the second death has no power over them, for they shall be priests of God and of Christ during the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, Revelation 20 verse 6 tells us that. The first resurrection actually takes place in various stages. Jesus Christ himself is first. He's referred to as the first fruits of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. There will be the resurrection of the dead in Christ described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the rapture of the church. Just a side note here, uh, not all will die. Uh, so despite what Benjamin Franklin said, death isn't certain to all, for some will be taken up by the Lord to meet him, with him in the clouds, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. There will also be the resurrection of the martyrs who died during the tribulation. This resurrection will take place at the end of the tribulation. It's described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And it would seem that even the Old Testament saints will also be raised at the end of the tribulation based upon what we read in the book of Daniel. And Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. It's referring to the tribulation. And it says, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Now, when it says sleep in the dust of the earth, that's a euphemism for saying they're dead. Okay? Those that are dead are going to uh, awaken. They're going to come back to life. Now, that's the first resurrection. 
The second resurrection is described in Revelation 20 as well, and it involves the wicked that are raised to life after the millennial reign of Christ in order to be judged by God at the great white throne judgment and subsequently cast into the lake of fire. We read about that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. This second resurrection is the resurrection of all non-believers. And so whether a believer or a non-believer... All will experience a resurrection of some sort. If a believer, you'll partake in the first resurrection. If a non-believer, you'll partake in the second resurrection. You see, life here on earth is temporary, but life after death is eternal. Let's make sure that we are not like these Sadducees who were mistaken about the power of God and His ability to raise the dead to life. Every single one of us will be raised to eternal life, and we'll either be in the first resurrection or we will be in the second resurrection. I also want to note that God not only has the power to raise the physically dead back to life, but he also has the ability to raise the spiritually dead to life here on earth. Many of us have partaken of that new life. God has the power to give us new life as we place our faith in him as Lord and Savior. The scriptures testify, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We all were once dead in our sins and trespasses, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. But God is able to bring to life that which is dead, both physically and spiritually. God has the power to not only give us new life, but he also has the power to sustain our life. Nothing that comes our way is too great for our Lord. He is powerful enough to handle any situation. Nothing is too big for our God. Nothing is too difficult. This is the final inescapable truth I want to point out for us this morning. The Lord declared to the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Of course, the obvious answer is no. No, okay? There is nothing too hard for the Lord. And if you find yourself here today, in a situation where you feel like God isn't powerful enough to get you through, let this truth sink into your heart and mind. God is all-powerful, and there is nothing that is too difficult for Him. Do not be misled or deceived. He is more than able. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these inescapable truths. Lord, um, The saying out there is death and taxes, Lord, but we know that it's uh, so much more than that. Lord, we do thank you for the inescapable truth that you are God Almighty and that there is nothing that is too difficult for you. Lord, we thank you that we can look to you to be our source of strength in times of difficulty and struggles, Lord. When we feel powerless, Lord, we can rely upon and come to you and find and know the strength of you, God. And Lord, it's in our weakness that your strength is perfected in us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you uh, would allow us to know that power, that strength. Lord, uh, I thank you that we are created in your image, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for these other inescapable truths that we noted, Lord, that we will all be held accountable for our faith in you, Lord, that we will all spend eternity either with you or without you, Lord. There is life after death, and Lord, it is only those who bow their knee and confess you as Lord and Savior on this side of eternity that will enjoy heaven with you for the rest of eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that if there is anybody here that is yet to bow the knee, to confess with their mouth, that they would do so today, that today would be the day of salvation, and they would know and be assured that they will spend eternity with you forever. Lord, we thank you again. 
for your word. We thank you that we can build our lives upon the solid foundation of your son, Jesus Christ, and the truth that he um, lived for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.